Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the latest episode of Table Talk. Uh, tonight, I have with me, as usual, Cameron. If you want to share with anyone who's new to this channel a little bit about yourself. Hey, guys. This is Cameron. I have been playing Dungeons & Dragons with these two guys for the last three years, uh, having an absolute blast. This is my first time ever doing anything like this before. Quickly got the bug and wanted to DM, and I just finished DMing our last campaign that lasted a little over a year. And had an absolute blast. Awesome. Small one, how about you? You want to share some things? Hey guys, so uh, my name is Christian Only. I am uh, Dylan's brother. He affectionately calls me Small One, even though I am taller than him. And I am a student at Ohio State University. I am currently home for the summer now. And I have been a player for the past 10 years, give or take. And have been working with Dylan through a lot of his different uh, projects, just giving him advice, giving him input, and I'm happy to give some input here in this topic today. Awesome. So all of you more than likely know me, or if it's your first time jumping on this channel, I am Dylan, throwing a lot of crafting stuff at you, creating content, both artistically and writing-wise for D&D, and very happy to have all of you with us here at Table Talk. Today, we're going to talk more in-depth world building. This is something that I feel is a topic we all feel very passionately about, both as players and as GMs. And it's something that we have a lot to share with all of you. So tonight, we're going to dive a little bit more in depth. It's part two of our world building series. And we're going to talk a little bit about what we would call lexicon stuff, and then also just sort of more in depth building your world, more fleshing things out. So that's enough jabbering for me. I'm going to kind of jump in here and say, you know, let's just kind of open it up. Let's talk about this a little bit. Yeah, so kind of piggybacking off of what you said, Dylan, really quickly, this is our second part series in the world building entity here. And I think we started off really broadly the last episode. And I really think that this episode, we're, we're trying to focus in and look at specifically how do you name things? How do you fit different objects, people, places, things into the world that you built? And how do you make it seem realistic? So actually, I you normally ask us questions, small one, about, you know, well, how do we do this? How do we do that? You know, you've been a player for so long. What are some of the things that you've noticed, either Cameron or I or the person who runs your 5e campaign? What are things that they've done to make the world feel realistic or to flesh it out for you? I think the main thing is, is they really need to make sure that the the items and the people that you meet represent the culture that you are seeing around the entire world. So if you're in a specific environment that should match, let's say, an Arctic environment, I'm expecting every item I see at a shop, at any type of uh, encounter, anything that I'm coming across should be in that same realm. I should see, you know, weapons that are covered in a little bit of frost, or I see weapons that are normally in the arctic environment it's kind of how you imagine animals when you see animals in their natural habitats they automatically have certain features that make them distinguished or i guess advantageous in that environment so i imagine every item or person should also be kind of in their niche if that makes sense okay that, yeah uh, so you're talking something that it's thematic to whatever environment they're in and i think it's, it's important that if it really catches the player's like attention or experience if they see something that doesn't really 
like it, it sticks out in the environment. It doesn't make sense immediately when you see it. So for example, if you're in a, let's say a temple and you come across an ancient rune that has kind of completely different vibes with it. It's dark, it's dangerous, it's scary. It definitely would catch the player's attention and it's a, a really good way for I guess if you want to bring in an item and really catch the player's attention, I would bring in an item that doesn't fit the environment. So really keep the mundane items to the environment and then throw at them a completely different item or player that does not match the environment and that really catches my attention. So using contrast when you're running a, an environment to help build the world a little bit. Exactly. Or set things apart. Okay, sweet. So Cameron, uh, what's something that you've done in the past to try and flesh out your world, either with language or, you know, items or characters, whatever? So kind of going off of what Small One just suggested, for me, one of the things that I found to be really helpful when I was DMing the last campaign we played. So for instance, kind of going with Small One's example there, at one point of our game, the party had kind of ventured into the northern realm of the, the continent they were on that was a lot of mountains and kind of snowy terrain. So one thing that for me that helped doing was I just kind of pictured, have you guys ever played around on like Google Maps before where you can like oh. pick up that little tiny like yellow stick figure dude and <laughs> drop him just on a street or whatever and then it just it kind of like plops you right down in that area and you can just kind of look all around you and stuff. And so I, I kind of just visualized that. So for instance, when the, in our campaign, the party had taken a, a giant, a giant kind of like undead, like monolith type thing that they wrote on the back of something. Prometheus, that, that, baby. Actually, I think it was a, it was a Kraken yep. that the party had killed and then Dylan's character swam down into the depths of the ocean and resurrected it with his necromantic abilities. And like that. that'll be a part, that'll be a story from another time when we're talking about <laughs> derailing a campaign and having to think on the fly. But anyway, so they had, they had taken the sea around to the top of the continent. They had gotten onto the land then, and they started heading up into the mountains. So in my mind, I just pictured if I picked up, the party and drop them here, what are they going to see? And so as I'm describing it, I'm mentioning how every day you're, you're noticing your breath fogs up a little more in your face and you're feeling in your fingers and toes that your, your circulation isn't quite what it was. And just, so rather than just telling them what it looks like, telling them the effect that they were noticing things that didn't mechanically make a difference in the game or whatever, but just to kind of maybe make it easier to visualize what they were doing. What you were doing that's super important for any DM to recognize and to think about is you're not just telling them what they see, you're telling them what they feel. And that's super important. I mean, when you're telling a story or you're reading a story, it's not just, okay, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. It's also, here's what you're feeling, here's what you're smelling. And, and that's very important for building a world. If you're talking about, okay, here's this, you know, rundown town or whatever, you could say, okay, yeah, it's all dilapidated and, and stuff kind of looks like crap or whatever. But if you add in there and you can smell like, you know, the fresh blood from the butcher's shop and you can smell like the rot coming from the sewer that's overflowing or whatever, that kind of helps your players to get a better feel for what your area or your world is feeling like. I think the big thing is show, don't tell. So if you want like me that. to get a certain feel 
from an environment. I don't want you to tell me the feeling I should be getting. I want you to show me through NPCs, through the environment, through the weapons that I see, through the items I see, to give a certain vibe. So you really don't want to, you want to be a movie director of sorts where you present the environment, you give, you lay out the scene. And from there, really, you want the characters to try and interact with the environment to get a certain vibe or certain feel from it. Yeah, I think that's a great point, you know, and, and not every DM is going to be able to do that. I mean, right out the bat, you know, it, it can be very hard for a new DM to be like, okay, I got to do like all the stat blocks stuff and I got to figure out what this place feels like. And I got to do that. Like, don't think that you, you need to be a superhero just starting out. We're just kind of giving advice about things that we've noticed. Say, hey, like, this is a cool way that we can kind of build on the world. And one of the things that we were talking about earlier was building a world through language and building a world through, you know, not just the items that you see or the feelings that you're talking to the players about or whatever, but also like what we name places or characters um, and how we go about doing that. So I think this would be kind of a good segue into you know, how we've done that in the past and what your thoughts are on that. That's a, that's a really good point. I think the big thing for me is I've actually delved into language construction just as a hobby uh, recently. Um, a few years ago, I <laughs> a few years ago I tried to make my own language with one of my friends, and we did manage to get pretty far. We had the basic structure laid out. We had a f- the grammar laid out. We had a few different like many different phrases, and we had a, a vocabulary building. But we never got to a full-out stage in which I think it would have been able to be fleshed out as an actual language or anything, like a con language. No Klingon. But, no, not unfortunately. But it was just incredible when you delve into lexicon and, and language construction in general to look at how particular every single part of it is and how every part can completely change another part of the entire culture building that you're trying to make you're trying to make a certain culture there's all these specific steps that lead into that culture that you didn't even realize when it comes to languages currently already made or whether it's a language that's you know fictional like the avatar language there's so much work put into that so I, I would just say as a uh, very, very amateur language construction uh, person that there's a lot you can do with this if you ever feel the need to create a language in D&D or any role-playing game. There's so many resources out there. The number one resource I used was the Language Construction Kit by Mark Rosenfelder, and we will link this in the show notes. But it was a fantastic book, and it gave so much information for how to get started in this in as much detail as you wanted and not as much as you wanted. If you want to do it the simple way, you could. One thing too, if I could interject. So I I can't speak to this to the same level of experience as small one, but I have come across on Reddit another, I think another source of someone that's interested in this type of thing that they could really get some uh, some good insight and good help from. Uh, so it's, it's r slash conlangs. We'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, and that's just a whole entire subreddit dedicated to people, conlangs, constructed languages. And there's all sorts of cool stuff on there. There's existing languages people have spent, like like legit linguists have spent months and years of their lives actually developing and 
putting into text and having printed examples of that they share on that. And so even if you don't want to make one yourself, but you want to kind of lift one that is a legit and like, like really fleshed out one, there's all sorts of stuff you could really borrow from there. And the other thing too is for the people out there who are like, I really don't want to get that in depth. I think it's a good idea to point out. You don't have to, you know, it's something that can add a lot to your game, but it's by no means something that's necessary. It's just something that we find, you know, if it's something that you enjoy, have at it, you know? <laughs> so the other thing that I was thinking about was, you know, not only just using language in a very literal term, but using it, um, you know, in your own games in more of a, uh, <laughs> not a professional way, but more of just a, not a simpleton way either, but, what I do, I guess, here we go, here's my fumbling attempt, is I like to get a few words or phrases or even just sounds of things, and I'll use them over and over in my game. So, for instance, one of the homebrewed characters I have in my campaign is Kaldul, and that's a necromancer who became a black dragon, was part of a bunch of mages who created this whole issue with the Mages War and all this fun stuff. So he's a historical figure, been around for a very long time, associated with death and destruction and all this. So what I decided to do was, well, I want there to be a history of this place, and I want this character, who was part of my first campaign, to also be a part of that history. So what I did was a lot of the different cities, or even like weapons or artifacts or whatever, if they were associated with him, they would have Cal in the name. So Cities like Cal Kenneth or Cal Scar, which are now, you know, they're not his cities anymore. They're taken over by Frost Giants or an organization called the Blank or whatever. Well, they still have that language of there's the name Cal still in it. So it's still associated with that character. And I do the same thing with other phrases and words where, you know, they're kind of made up, but I can add them in and they start to build meaning over time. And it's something where players might not ever notice it. But if they do, it's kind of one of those cool aha moments. And it gives me a, a fun and easy way to name things. No, that's really cool. And that's just one more small thing. Like Dylan said, you can literally do as much or as little as you want. But so something that small one is saying, and as far as constructing your own language, that's that's like the very far end of the spectrum of how deep and how how like headfirst you can go into something like this. And Dylan's example here is on the other end of the spectrum where someone that doesn't feel like they can or doesn't have the time or doesn't want to spend years and months or whatever coming up with their own language can still have something like in this case, like Dylan said, it, it kind of adds like the cultural part of it to the world. Uh, so even though right now, like he said, that the city doesn't belong to to Kaldul, generations ago it did. And so this is the the effect that still is kind of like lingering on that area. So. Yeah, and it's not a huge thing, but it is something that can help flesh out areas. And I think that goes for, like, NPC names, too, where, you know, I've done it with the latest campaign. There's a bunch of people who their first name starts with Dell, and everyone's kind of making fun. What? You know, everyone's name is Dell. Well, there's a reason for it. Maybe they don't know it right now, but it's something where if I'm in a jungle area, so right now we're in this jungle area, a lot of the names sound very exotic. They're kind of hard to pronounce, and it can get a little bit annoying at times. But I didn't want to have just a bunch of generic names. Like I didn't want John Smith running around in the middle of, you know, the <laughs> the jungle of Cholt kind of a thing. So I made a point of saying, okay, if I'm in this region, 
all the characters that are in here, they're going to have exotic names unless they've traveled from somewhere else. And then it makes sense for them to have a more generic name and be here. And I think that that adds a little bit of flavor, um, just like if you're naming a shop in an area, you know, if you have a seafaring town, you're going to name shops more like a seafaring town shop names would be something like the Lucky Lobster. <laughs> no, that's good. But, you know, I think that's important, too, is to think about what are you naming people and places? So, Cameron, I'm interested. What are what are some of the names like that you've either found from other places to use or that you've been inspired by? That kind of a deal. For mine, truthfully, so for the campaign that I ran, as far as names went for NPCs, the biggest advice, I guess the biggest source that I used was an NPC random name generator that I, we kind of touched on that before last episode. We'll link it again in this one though. And that just made such a big help. Just the fact of being able to know that, all right, the party's about to encounter a drow. So here's a list of drow names for male or female. I'll pick one and that's now who that is. And being able to just have not have to worry about, like Dylan said, having John Smith, the drow, walk into the room and they're like, okay, well, now I don't believe this is this is really happening anymore. So just, I mean, because as much as like, like Dylan and Christian have both been playing this for 10 plus years and both of them do a really great job of suspending disbelief, but not everybody's like that or is able to do that to the same degree. And so the more believable you can make it be, just the more immersive it, it just leads to the game being. And so, so NPCs, I, I did random name generators, but my own personal thing, um, city names I had lifted from a book series. I touched on that a little bit, but my main thing, the campaign that I ran, the basically the, the overlying story arc was that the party was looking for a set of relics that were hidden around the realm that they were trying to find them before the enemy could. These relics were the key to opening up a portal between the two universes to get back basically to their home in Dylan's world. And if they found them first, they would be able to have the good mages use them to send them home. If the enemy found them first, he was going to also open the portal back up, but he was going to do it and bring a war through to Dylan's world and rain down a vengeance on the people that had cast them aside. And so it was kind of a race against time. So as they're looking for these MacGuffins, these relics, I basically, I designed these all, I homebrewed the whole thing. I got a lot of inspiration from some different stuff. Uh, Matt Colville, I mentioned already, but the the thing that, I, that, that really intrigued me was to, so for instance, one of the relics that the party was looking for, it was for the School of Illusion. And I had from Matt Colville's campaign that he's he runs, he had it, it was an it was a name of a ship. It was it was called the Dark Dream. And that just that stood out to me as just such a cool name that I wanted to name something the Dark Dream. And so I decided I'll name one of the relics the Dark Dream. It, uh, the School of Illusion has some spells regarding sleep and nightmare, and that'll be perfect to go with the Dark Dream motif. But rather than just straight up calling it that, my idea was that. I'll name it, I'll, I'll translate it to Latin, and that's what the relic will be named in. So that slowly then became the point, uh, the the direction then, where all of the, the codexes had Latin-based names. Um, so for instance, the Dark Dream Codex became the Somnium Tenebris, and that just sounded really cool, I thought, and really kind of magical and mysterious. And so it didn't really mean much to the party because 
Obviously, in the game, Latin's not a language where the party members would be able to translate that and pick up on anything. I literally just found out before we started filming this that Dylan took two years of Latin in college, so he was <laughs> able to pick up on some stuff like that, but he didn't metagame with it. He didn't share that with anybody. But it So just the fact that it was like a deeper thing, though, and so that um, that was something that I did. Yeah, and I think that's really cool, like when we're able to find something – you know, language-wise and bring it in. And, and even, like, you know, looking up Latin names for stuff, I do it all the time, um, even when I'm, you know, working with um, some of these Kickstarters where I'm naming things and coming up with stuff. I'll look at, okay, you know, I've got, like, a rat king or something. And, okay, well, I need to come up with a cool name for him. What's the first thing I do? I'm going to look up rat and find, okay, you know, what's the Latin name for it? Or, you know, who's the first person... Uh, to have a disease from a rat or whatever. And I'll start looking at hist real life history. And a lot of times for me, it makes it interesting where I'm like, okay, cool. Now I have a cool NPC name. So for instance, like I had a were rat who was basically like getting all these kids to join him, all these orphans. And I wanted him though to seem like a bad guy. So I'm like, okay, well, let's say that everyone thinks he's eating children. And the first thing I'm like, is like, okay, what's a cool rat name? Well, Skaven, you know, is the whole rat race from Warhammer. That's a pretty cool name. So let's make his first name Skaven. And then I'm like, all right, what's a what's a name for, like, someone who is a cannibal or eats kids? Because we want to make it seem like that's what he's doing. So, but I also wanted him to feel kind of fancy because I wanted him to be, you know, sort of a good guy in disguise. So I looked up French and I said, okay, what's, you know, eating kids in French is mange en femme. So I'm like, all right, Skaven... <laughs> Skaven <laughs> You just knew that? And well, uh, I also Off the took top French. Of his head. I, I took French too. So, you know, Skaven, it became Skaven Mangeonfant was his name. And nobody caught on to it. He knows his, that in every language, though. His name literally meant Skaven <laughs> eats children. And, wow. and I just, like, to me, I thought that was really cool. Like, even if my players didn't know it, to have that in there as a DM, because in the back, it was like, if you've ever seen the behind the scenes for Lord of the Rings, where I don't remember the actor's name, but the King of Rohan on the inside of his armor, they've actually put like the insignia for his house or whatever. And nobody who watches the movie sees it, but he as the actor knows that it's there. And I think it can kind of be that way when you're DMing or building a world is like you put something in that you know is there and it makes it more real and more cool for you. And then it makes it better for everyone else. No, that's a great point. I think that's, something small that you can do as a DM, whether it's just naming a character, whether it's naming a place, to really give you a personal connection as a DM to that and actually automatically invest yourself more in different places and different characters. As a DM, sometimes you don't want to get attached to players, different NPCs, different places. But I think it's really important as a DM to understand and also have that human connection to a place or to an npc because like then you can well then you can act more like a benevolent benevolent overlord than a tyrant <laughs> and that's something that i think really differs by some gms or dms they really see the game as a sometimes it's it's always collaborative between me and my and my uh, players and sometimes it's more of me versus my players. And I think something to appreciate is that if you're building a world and you're putting this much time into it, then you want it to have a good story either way. 
So you should invest in your NPCs and your places and the things that you're doing to make it worthwhile. Because why would you want your players to be messed around in a sandbox world that means nothing? So why not put that effort in to really make it make it something at least to you and hopefully to them? Well, and the thing too is we're talking again about you know building a whole world from scratch, and that takes a lot of you know time. Oh, it takes so much time, I'm sure. And And again, you don't have to do that, and I don't think we want to you know shame anybody who wants to just pull a campaign out of a box or whatever. Like you can totally do that, and that's completely fine. All of us take you know reference from pre-built campaigns already. We're just kind of saying like. Dude, if you have the time and you want to put it in, you want to build something like that, this is some advice to do it. Or if you're taking something from somebody else, you can change it just a little bit in order to make it new or exotic or different in your own world. And that right. really means a lot to uh, not just like your players. They might, I mean, they may not realize it immediately and they might not connect certain small lexicon changes and you know scaven like i never knew that 100 percent never knew that but i think like you said it's it's just impactful to have something like that if you're really trying to build a culture and a world if you're really going for the in-depth campaign it really does make it that one extra step. If you have the time and you have the resources to do that, I highly recommend it. Well, I guess what I'm wondering is, Cameron and Dylan here, when you were making different languages, different, I guess, cultures, if you were given, let's say, a, a basic, let's just go with a straight, I don't know, a weapons shop. How do you make it stand out in a new culture, a new world? How do you make it specifically, not broadly? How do you take that broad world you just built and how do you focus down specifically into this one shop and really make it distinct? This might be kind of backtracking a little bit to what you already touched on, small one. But for me, the the main thing I would think of would be to kind of look at the, I guess, the the lifestyle of the town, if that makes sense. So like, for instance, a a town that's right on the ocean is going to be obviously heavily influenced by trade. And so they're probably going to have a lot of the the shops going to have obviously like normal stuff, but they're probably going to have an overabundance of like fresh fish or they're going to have nets. They might have maybe a trident as a weapon, something that's more kind of nautical. So that would be something in that regard. Maybe a town that's deep in the mountains somewhere is going to obviously be more heavily influenced by mining and by by like caravans and trading. So they're probably going to have maybe pickaxes and stuff like that. They might have more scarce. You have to kind of look at what's available too. So the the town in the mountains probably has very little fresh produce. You know, they they probably have a lot of like um, salted meats and things like that that could that could stay on the back of a wagon for weeks and weeks and weeks as it gets traded from one town by the coast up to the town in the mountains. And that could be, you could even go one step further in the, the town that's, uh, the whole commerce is centered around mining. There's probably a, a layer of dust on most of the stuff and the floors are probably dirty from people tracking coal dust in and just things like that where just the little tiny details that, that just make it believable that you're in that room. 
No, that's that's really good. I say piggybacking on that. I think that even more than like what your you know shop has or you know the name of it or whatever, it's the NPC that's there. You know, if you're gonna actually walk through, you know, here's all the stuff in the shop, and you know this this is what's available, and this is the shop name, and this is how the floor looks, and how the place smells, and all that. Even more than that, I find is okay. Well, what's what's the shopkeep look like? Like, what's his name? What's his story? Kind of a thing. And if you have an interesting NPC, that's going to bring your players back again and again. You know, if you've got the the normal, oh, yeah. you know, okay, this is my shop, and here you go. Here's your weapons, whatever your normal stuff. And they're like, okay, cool. But like, I have I have one that my players haven't met yet. And you'll both have to forget about this. Um, but one of the characters I have, it's ridiculous, but the point is that it is ridiculous because it's memorable, and his name is Old Chap Entercap. And he's literally <laughs> an Entercap who is a purveyor of pedigree spiders that sells them, and instead of a physical shop, he has a top hat that has a, a dimensional pocket inside where his shop is. So he literally <laughs> will take his top hat off, and inside of it is his whole shop. You can go inside and all this stuff. Well, the cool thing about that is that not only is he completely ridiculous and something that will be insanely memorable, you got an editor cap with a top hat and a cane walking up to you that's going, oh, good sir, would you like to you know, check out my fine selection of pedigree of spiders, well-bred, you know, like that's insane. And it's something that's memorable and kind of funny and quirky. And, you know, even when you're running a serious campaign like we do, it's fun to have those little tidbits here and there. And it helps build your world as like, yeah, there's like, at like anywhere you've got zany people you know what i mean but the cool thing about that too is he he can pop up wherever so they could be in the middle of a dungeon and all of a sudden here's old chap Ettercap with his shop inside of his top hat that's like oh he's looking for some spiders in this area and i if any of you need any healing potions or such i suppose i could give you a you know that kind of thing but more than that i just think npc fun npcs like npcs with character and that's what you know, I'm working on Kickstarters and that all the time. One of the big things that we do is think about how can we make something that is memorable, is unique. And um, I think that's something that really helps someplace, an, an area stick out. And something that uh, I think Cameron brought up that's really important is the, the commerce and the economy of the place. That's something I've never really thought about as a player is when I'm going from one specific town to another, the economy is going to be different. The items I once had should be valued a little bit differently in a new place. Whether it's a place that has, you know, a ban on magical weapons, obviously magical weapons are highly valued, but also just as simple as a place that you said, a mining town in which fresh produce is a, a major commodity that they don't have. They mostly have salted, you know, meat or, you know, there's so many other examples. What what I automatically think of is if you've ever uh, played the game Spore, in which you take one spice from one world and you move it to a completely other universe, it, it's just valued completely different. So automatically, I think of is taking one item from one city and you take it all across the country, it's going to be worth completely different, most likely, unless they have extremely good travel and commerce in which it's an open trade environment. But I think that's a really good point. And also, Dylan, of course, I love NPCs that reoccur and are 
comedic, but also give you emotional ties to them. Because if it's a if somebody attacks a city and the shopkeeper is some random who knows what, I really don't have very much. Me personally, I my character has no invested interest in that. But if I know that it's this one salesman who always gives me slight deals and has been with me throughout, you know, I've traded with him multiple times now, and I know they have this specific item that I'm saving up for, or I'm really interested in this certain property they may be able to sell or other contact they may put me in, I'm going to be so much more invested in saving them and helping that town than if they're just some nobody. Yeah. I mean, building relations, and I think that's a big thing, is when we're building worlds, we're building relations for our players. That's how you build a world, is by building good you know, relationships, not only with, with NPCs, but with the environment and the places and all that stuff. So that's one of the best ways, you know, to get your players invested in a game is to have a, you know, well-built world. So what I'm wondering is when you're building a, let's say a mini game or a puzzle, for example, when you build this, the symbols, the intricates, language to decipher that may in fact not be any known language from any of the characters where do you draw inspiration from how do you design the puzzle how does lexicon fit into it i've actually done many many times i've stolen from nordic runes i think that's kind of the the classic trope you know with lord of the rings and that the dwarven runes that were obviously inspired by the sort of celtic style and that's something I've stolen from many, many, many times. But the other thing that I've done is, you know, taken from the, the Elder Scrolls Oblivion because I just love their Daedric language. And actually, way back when I was in high school, I wrote my own language. Not, not nearly the lexiconal, but just took the alphabet, made different symbols that match with the alphabet, and said, okay, here's the language. Uh, and what I've started doing is in my D&D games, I will intersperse little you know uh, decoders so the players will start to figure out okay this is the letter a this is the letter b you know whatever and over time if they save those and pay attention to them they can actually decode the entire language so that future puzzles are not really puzzles it's just okay let's go get our decoder out and figure it out (laughs) and that's actually worked really well and i i only really used it during the the dark fathom campaign that we played last time but people started to catch on and keep some of the the stuff from earlier and go oh like right that symbol means this and then they were able to decode it and i thought that was pretty cool well something to consider i know this is kind of jumping around a little bit but when you're creating a a made-up language symbols whatever it is make sure to consider who is in control of that language because a lot of the times how the language is brought up and deciphered out to everyone is often due to who is at power currently so if you're in a city in which let's say the priests are mostly in power then i would expect a lot of the language to center around religion or if you're in a town in which the common folk have a lot more power in just general in the hierarchical structure then you would expect the language to be based mostly on more, I guess, not a, 
I wouldn't say fluff words, but I'd say more filler words in which like you'd have tons of different words to say whatever profession that that town is. It wouldn't be uh, very strict on one profession it has one word. It'd be like fishing could be told in you know five or six different ways it was the same word for fishing, for example. It's just important to remember the culture or who's in charge. Something else too would be that, like for instance, in that example, a town that's mainly just maybe farmers and fishers and that kind of stuff, they're, they're probably not going to have things titled something that's very academic sounding, you know, they're going to, oh, their, yeah. their, their tavern's probably going to be called uh, the red fish or something with color and like an, an, a noun that's common to them. You know, it's, it's not going to have something Latin based and something scholarly sounding. So that kind of is something to be cognizant of too. I think that goes along with like politeness too. <laughs> I, I was going to say that when, you know, we're talking about how the NPCs talk, you know, kind of a thing. So if they're naming something and they're talking about the bar and it's this name or whatever, you know, the way they talk can also be influenced by that. You don't want your farmer running around who, you know, you're making him sound like he's got some crazy high IQ using all these big words. Like he's probably talking in a Cockney accent and can barely string his sentences together kind of a thing. Cause he hasn't had any education and that just helps build your world too, where maybe the King sounds much more educated. Oh yeah. And also too, I think a lot of it for me, something that I'd really tried to keep in mind was just the, the whole kind of like social standing of everything. So when the party would come to a, a little tiny kind of crossroads in and basically somewhere they could safely stay at night. I mean, walking into this inn to the people inside of it, the party was some really kind of rough looking group of mercenaries that clearly had some sort of standing because they're all outfitted with really good armor and good items. And they have the little pendants that show that they're working with the King and stuff. So all of those people in there are going to be deferring to the party because they're seeing them as, basically like like minor lords or whatever but whereas when the party goes to a big city now they're just some random kind of adventurers that they just probably get looked down on so being uh kind of keeping that in mind too i think helped the just how the npcs were reacting to the party itself yeah that's huge that's a very good point and when i'm thinking of politeness again going back sorry to how different cultures if they're built around let's say like an entire culture is built around like war like let's say like think of like the romans or you know that type of era then you would expect their language to be very direct very aggressive the words to sound aggressive the people even if even if you can understand the language it would sound just a little bit tense in its tone and also you would expect there to be in every language, whether it's, you know, aggressive tone, polite tone, whatever it is. I really love the idea of having colloquialisms inside of a language. So if you can just throw out a colloquialism into, um, let's say, like at a bar, the bartender will say like, oh, you know, instead of saying like, oh, you're really like, you know, Josh in my chain or something like he would throw out a completely new colloquialism that nobody would understand. And it would really be up to the player characters to be interpreting that based on the culture they're in. That's really cool. Yeah. 
that's fun. And I've done the same, not quite to that extent, but with like titles. So, you know, we all know, okay, he's the king, he's the prince, he's the mayor, whatever. But I, you know, started throwing in, okay, this, this city is all ship stuff. So we're going to call this guy the dock keeper, the dock master. And it's just something mm. small. But instead of calling them the mayor, it's no, he's, you know, he's the dock master. And that was something that it was small, but I thought was something that added a little bit to that area that made it feel different. It made it feel more like a fishing town than your, you know, parochial, whatever. That's again, show, don't tell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then as the party interacts with that NPC, they're learning from the context of how other NPCs act around that person or the, the way that they're held of. So is, does the doc master mean that he's, held in high regard or is that a job that nobody wants and that's something that he's been titled oh, yeah. you know so it's it's a lot of just kind of making the the players kind of be looking for context and paying more attention that reminded me of you know you guys know the book or even the movie now the giver yeah the, I so know there's the like book, a yeah. certain title that's bestowed upon somebody and you as a as a the book reader don't really understand at first what the title means or the, I guess the emotional strain that comes with that position. And you slowly like delve into it as the character in the book slowly becomes the um, mentor and mentee of this position. You learn what it means. And I really love how in D and D you can do the similar thing in which you have, a, like you said, a position in a certain community that is either highly regarded or not highly regarded and has all this other background around it. You could maybe be the cane of a town, but you realize that that's the worst position to be in, and that you actually have all this horrible stuff that the cane has to do, or is forced to do. And you can just switch it around the head. Like, out of completely nowhere, you can make a position that seems super highly regarded into one of the toughest and worst jobs in the city. And it, it just adds a lot, you know, having things, turning things on their head is very important and something that really helps build worlds. But we're coming up on our time here. As always, it feels like we can go on and on about some of these world building topics. Before we kind of jet out for the night, are there any closing thoughts that anybody has on this before we sort of wrap things up? I would just say, even if you're trying to make a very, very simple encounter or world, there are small touches that can go a long way to building a great culture, a great vibe for your players and you to delve into. Yeah, I would second that too. And kind of in the words of Dylan earlier, you can do as much or as little as you want, but I would encourage you to at least try something. There's plenty of resources if you want to be the, I mean, they say the lazy DM, but the quote unquote lazy DM, you want to pre-built stuff and, and things that makes your life easier, like have at it, you know, no judgment here because we, we've all done it too. But we, we do want to kind of encourage you and give you some helpful tips and tricks to help you enhance your game. And hopefully some of this has been helpful. We're going to wrap things up then uh, with our sign offs here for tonight. So small one, what you got for your sign off? All right, so this is Christian, and I would just like to say, if the players don't like your NPC's name, simply don't take the blame. <laughs> nice. Cameron, how about you? This is Cameron with Critical Crafting, and my only vice is rolling dice.
This is Dylan with Critical Crafting. Small one has stolen my rhyme, so I guess I'll just have to come <laughs> up with one for next time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. We will see you next time uh, here on Table Talk. Hope you enjoyed the content. Please do like and subscribe. Check out some of our links down at the bottom here for different resources and that to check out. And we hope that you all have some great crafting and playing ahead. See ya. And I said, okay, what's, you know, eating kids in French is mange en femme. You just knew that? And, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs>